The mission of FSU Coach is to prepare and equip the next generation of coaches and sports professionals with best practices and current research to enable them to pursue excellence. We have two academic programs, the online graduate certificate, which is four classes, and also a 10-class master's in athletic coaching. Our graduate certificate and master's program can be started at any time, either the, the summer, fall, or spring. All of our classes have the word coach or coaching in them, and they're taught by coaches for coaches. The types of classes that we offer focus on the athlete as a whole person. We focus on the theory and practice, the research, the helping skills, uh, even some of the mental performance behind you know, what it goes into being an athlete. I came to FSU Coach because I truly believed in the mission and the purpose of the program. I think I have my dream job being a head coach at Florida State, but I know there's always more ways that I can help my athletes and better prepare as a coach, so I thought joining this master's program would help me um, learn different ways to uh, attack my job. If you're interested in going into coaching or joining the FSU Coach program, I would just say don't even think about it and do it. All right, well, welcome everybody to FSU Coach Live, another edition, and today's special guest is Danielle uh, McNamara. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. If you wouldn't mind, just share a little bit about you and how you got into the roles in tennis that you now have. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up, uh, started playing tennis at a pretty young age. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts, about ten year, eight years old, I started playing and then just sort of fell in love with the sport. And honestly, it's been a huge part of my life ever since. So spent my entire um, childhood, you know, playing and, and training and competing at the highest level in junior tennis, which then ultimately led me to play college tennis at the University of Michigan, um, where I went and played um, from 96 to 2001. When I graduated, I, um, I continued playing on after college for a few years professionally. But I always knew that when my playing days were over that I really wanted to get into coaching and, and particularly at the college level, just because I had such an amazing experience and I knew the impact my coach had on me and I wanted to kind of turn around and, and have that impact on other people. So that's pretty much what happened. Like when I finished playing, um, my college coach from Michigan, who was still there, uh, word of mouth, she knew about an opening um, uh, for the assistant coach position at Yale with the women's tennis team there. So kind of made a call to the interim head coach who had just gotten that job and um, drove down a couple of days later for an interview in New Haven, ended up getting the job as the assistant coach for that year. Um, and then the woman I worked for, the interim head coach, actually, she left Yale. She was getting married and moving. So the head job opened up um, at the time. I think I might have been 25 years old with one one year of full-time assistant wow. coach experience and decided, you know what, I really think I can do this. I think I'm ready. Um, definitely the year that I had there helped me because I was able to um, kind of see what things were like and, and really clearly articulate a vision for the program. I knew the players, I knew the university and, and the department. And so, um, yeah, I put my name in the hat and ended up tricking someone into hiring me <laughs> as the head coach. Um, and so got that job and was there for um, eight years. Um, and we did we did well. You know, we we had success um, on the court and recruiting off the court. And um, after my 
eight years there. I, uh, I, I had already had one child. I was due with my second. Life was feeling a little overwhelming with full-time coaching. So for family reasons, just decided to kind of step away from coaching. Um, in my mind, it was temporarily, not sure how long, but but I was due with my second child in August of 2014. And so I stepped away in June of that year, only to then <laughs> receive a phone call uh, that summer from the University of Texas um, about an opening that was there for the head women's job, which was a, definitely a, a bucket list job for me. Um, they've had tremendous success at the highest level in Division One, so kind of one of those you couldn't couldn't at least entertain. So the the issue was I um, I was so far along in my pregnancy I couldn't fly at all. The doctors wouldn't clear me. I was about a couple of weeks. I was a week away from my due date. So the athletic director flew to Hartford um, and I met her in the airport for a long lunch <laughs> and um, and ended up being offered the job. I think the day before I went into labor, had my son, uh, <laughs> then I kind of had to make a life changing decision on moving. Anyways, long story short, we decided to go down. I was in Austin uh, for a little while coaching there, um, but ended up coming back to Yale uh, about two years later and coached for another four years before um, kind of stepping away uh, from college coaching uh, about almost uh, about a year and a half ago. So that was my coaching story. <laughs> um, yeah. I, have, I have a few questions and I, and I want to back up to uh, you playing professional tennis uh -huh. and I, Forgive me, I haven't seen you uh, up at the Grand Slam winners. Yep. And one of the things that I, I've heard and, and maybe experienced from others is just the challenge, the, the drain that being a professional has when you're not up on the stage lights, guaranteed this amount of money for being in a tournament. What was it like for you being a professional tennis player who, who wasn't in the you know, top 20 in the world? Yeah, no, you're right. It, it is a bit of a grind. Um, you know, it, it costs a lot of money. It's a huge commitment, obviously, you know, just the training that's involved, the travel, getting to tournaments. Um, I ended up moving back to Massachusetts from Michigan to train with a coach from juniors that I really connected well with. Um, and it was really great because he wasn't, you know, looking to make money off of me. He just wanted to help me. So it became a, an affordable, really good option. Um, you know, you're on the road. Fortunately, I knew a lot of players that were doing the same thing from college tennis days. So we were able to practice together, share hotel rooms, like cut costs that way. We were all kind of in the same boat, just trying to get through. Um, but yeah, no, it's not glamorous. You're, you know, I was fortunate. I did have some financial um, sponsor some backers that allowed me to to play as long as I did, but um, it, it's it's not glamorous and it's a real struggle. I chose to stay primarily in the U.S. and North America to compete, just for you know it was a little bit more affordable. But the competition is so tough when you do that. Um, not to say it's not other places, but it seems like extremely difficult. So, you know, you, you just, you, you do your best, but it was an amazing experience. I wouldn't have traded it for the world, um, but it is, uh, it's tough. When did you decide, you know what, I'm done here. Uh, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore because it is, it is hard to, in any job, but particularly one in sports where, you know, athletics is something you've, you've done your whole life. 
And then for you to just hang up your racket and say, this is, this is not my path anymore. How did you make that decision? Cause in many ways it can seem like, um, defeat. Yeah, no, you're right. I, it was made a little bit easier for me by the fact that I did have um, an injury that essentially got to the point where surgery would have been required to fix mm -hmm. it. So it really makes you sit there and go, you know, do I really want to go through this just to live an ordinary life or play, you know, recreationally? I didn't need to have it fixed, but to play at that level, um, I, I would have needed to. And I think that kind of forced me to sit down and have a hard conversation with myself um, and I realized, you know, I was I was just kind of tired of being on the road all the time. And like it was amazing experience. But I think that just made it more clear for me yeah. that I was ready to move on to some. And I was also really excited about the idea of coaching. Mm. Um, and so like having that kind of next potential step made it a little bit easier. But I definitely went through a bit of an identity crisis of like, who am I? I'm no, I'm no longer Danielle, the tennis player. Like, yeah. who am I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when you went into coaching, I, I know you're in, you've, you've been in coaching education with um, intercollegiate tennis association for a little while and, and value coaching education. Yeah. What was it like for you going into coaching first as an assistant coach and then as a head coach where a lot of people just assume, well, Danielle's a pro player she'll be a great coach. Yeah. What was it like for you? I mean, um, it was, it was a little intimidating. I just sort of went on, you know, the, my guts a lot of times I didn't yeah. have very much education. My education came through, um, the coaches that I had, my parents, you know, the real mentors in my life. Like that's where I learned mostly by just example. Um, but I never, you know, I'd never been certified. I never really took, you know, I didn't have a master's in anything related to coaching. So it was like a learn on the job kind of thing, which can be a little bit um, definitely scary. But um, but yeah, no. And, and being young like that, like, I mean, being a head coach with one year of experience, I, I really did seek out other head coaches in my department that were fantastic and helping kind of take me under their wing a little sure. bit. Um, but that was about it for me in education at that time. Now you're in coach education. What have you learned along the way that you think coaches who may be in your position? Um, and we've, we've heard about it even this year where, where players are becoming head coaches overnight. What, what components do you think are really important for somebody going into coaching for the first time where they, re you really need to know this. Yeah. I mean, I would encourage them to seek out educational opportunities um, as soon as possible, you know, whether it's um, a master's program or something formal like that, or maybe it's through your, your sport association or organization. I know a lot of them now offer um, coach education courses or programs um, or, or even just, you know, whether that's, getting some books, like learning from, I, I did a ton of reading. I, I think, you know, John Wooden was a huge mentor. Like I, I didn't know him, but you know, I, I own every book. I have a signed basketball by him. It sat on my desk. That like, was my inspiration when I had to make a tough decision and be like, what would John Wooden do? <laughs> um, but so reading, learning from the best, learning from the greats, um, seeking out those in your department, kind of like I did. I thought that was really valuable for me, just 
going and watching other teams practice, like anything you can soak up from those coaches around you that you admire and think have done well and do it. You know, you, you really have to be your own um, advocate. You have to be a student of your game. Like, just like you ask your own players to be, I think that's, that's very much on you as well. Um, so you need to go out and find those opportunities. You made a good point in there talking about John Wood and a lot of coaches perhaps have a tendency to, to learn from others in their sport without recognizing that sometimes we have to learn from people who are not in our sport. Yep, absolutely. And I would even extend that beyond sports. So like there was a book, uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins that I must have read 10 times. <laughs> and I would take parts of that, like the flywheel concept. I mean, these are business books but you can apply these principles to any organization. Like what makes a great organization, whether it's a school, a sports team, a company, whatever it is, it's the same like fundamental principles of being a leader of others, trying to be great, trying to separate yourself. Like, what does that mean? Um, so yes, beyond just sports as well, I would say. Now you are a coach at, at Yale and, and Texas and then back at Yale you, you coached for a good number of years. I was doing the math, I think about 14 years, yeah. if, if I'm accurate. What, what brought you to the decision that I'm no longer going to be a coach? Just like mm -hmm. being a player, a coach can be an identity. It's what we do. How did you decide this isn't for me anymore? Yeah, that, that was a struggle for me, um, a real struggle. And honestly, um, there was a period of time in the middle of those all those years where I wasn't a coach. I was actually a, a stay-at-home mom with my two mm -hmm. young kids in between my transition from Texas back to Yale. Um, and so once I had kids, honestly, the whole everything changed for me. And I, I, I'll be honest, I've always struggled with the balance of how can I be a great coach and a great mom? And I just never felt like I did either one well enough. It was like this internal challenge for me. Um, and so I think what happened at the end is that, you know, you're, I was constantly doing this calculation of sacrifice, like pros and cons, like yeah, the scale just for me tipped because my kids are getting older now. They're eight and 11. And I finally just reached the point where I felt like I just didn't want to miss so much stuff anymore. You know, <laughs> I wanted to be around more. I wanted to be more involved. Um, and honestly, COVID, the whole COVID year, or, you know, two years really um, in the Ivy League, we were completely shut down. Like we couldn't do anything for a very long time. No recruiting, no nothing, like barely any practice, no competition. And in a weird way, it almost gave me a chance to feel what it would feel like to not coach without having to make the decision. And when I look back, I almost wonder if that gave me the courage um, to actually be like, I, I think this is what I, what I want to do now is kind of be more a family facing. So that, that for me is what did it. I think I just realized I wanted to be around more. <laughs> yeah. So you, you left coaching, then you got involved in the ITA. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So the ITA is the Intercollegiate Tennis Association, which is the, the governing body of college tennis, all divisions, um, D1, 2, 3, NAIA, and junior college. And um, 
My role with them was the director of coach education, which was a new role that was created in January of 2022. Um, when I was a coach, I had been very involved with the ITA. I was on you know, various committees and um, I served on their board of directors twice. So I knew the organization pretty well and I knew the people, the leadership and um, it was an organization that I, I think does great things and I wanted to be a part of. And I, and I really wanted to continue to be involved in college tennis in some capacity. So um, this opportunity came along and I jumped on it. And so that that's what I've been doing for um, you know the last year or so, um, working in creating new programs, new resources, new educational opportunities for all college coaches of all divisions. When we talk about coach education, there's there's that fine line between requiring coach education from coaches and expecting them to maybe uh, invest financially into that coach education versus we need to make this accessible and affordable to all, but we can't require it because mm -hmm. if we require it, people will just balk at it. Yeah. And we, yeah, I know, I know college coaching is different to maybe high school or volunteer coaching, mm -hmm. but it seems to be a, a particular trend where a lot of coaches just don't have training. You trained yourself in many ways, reading mm -hmm. books, talking to coaches, doing all those right things. Many coaches don't do those things and required, required coach education helps to ensure that they get some of those things, whether they choose to get them or not. Where is college tennis in that? I hate the word space. It's my least favorite word, but it's what <laughs> I can think of in that, in that realm, I guess. It, are, are we still hiring coaches who, who don't really have coach education, but, but really were great players or have a good track record? Yeah. Where are we at? Yeah, I think that that is more where we are right now, but we're really trying to make a shift in that um, and raise the level of professionalism and and just overall, like you said, the education of our coaches in, in tennis, in college tennis and tennis more broadly. If you go to other parts of the world, it's just required, like that you're yeah. certified at a certain level and you. I don't care what your playing background is like if you don't have certain things you're not coaching at certain levels not so much the case here um i do think that where we have been focusing on the most is kind of this next generation of coaches coming into our profession um and trying to shift the mentality a little bit um you know we haven't been requiring anything we we did start up a new course last year that was open to first-time head coaches we had overwhelming, an overwhelmingly positive response to it. Um, and, and I'm talking like from, you know, young, young coaches coming in to um, we, this, this particular course is geared towards a first time head coach, but for our first year, we opened it up to any head coach that had had applied, which meant that we had power five head coaches that have been coaching for decades in the course as well, which was so exciting. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. here's, here are coaches that are eager to learn, even though they've been doing this a long time. I think that's pretty rare. Um, and so our job, our, what we're trying to do is really shift that mentality in, in the college tennis coaching world. Can you make it required? 
Uh, I mean, I guess you can. I think we would get significant pushback. You know, maybe mm -hmm. that's. And that's maybe interesting. That's okay. maybe, that's, maybe that's okay and you should still do it. Um, but I think that would be a struggle. <laughs> I just find it interesting that you say we would get significant pushback from the idea that coaches need to be educated and trained. Right. It, yeah. it, it's kind of, I don't know what the word is, but, but almost the opposite of what it should be. It yeah. should be, what's the next course I can take rather than do I have to do this? And mm -hmm. I can tell you that that, that trend is not just limited to collegiate tennis. Right. Um, how do we, how do we change that? How do we get coaches wanting more training, wanting that next professional development opportunity? I know it's a great question. And, and I think that that's kind of where we landed on trying to loop in our sort of veteran, most experienced coaches, which I think generally speaking are the ones that push back and would say mm -hmm. like, well, why do I need this? This, you know, I've been right. doing this for decades. Like I'm good. Um, hey, if we can get as many of them on board, great. Uh, but where we really want to make sure that it's just standard common practice, like this is what you do, is are those newer coaches coming in saying like, this is how you can do it and do it well. Like to be a great coach, you do need education. You do need to be at the convention every year. You do, you know, like it's part of your job. But I also feel like I wonder, you know, how do you get to the people making the hires? You know, how do you make it so that it's a requirement? Like they want to see that on your resume, that yeah. you've been certified, that you have this, you know, education. Um, because that's where I think you'll really see a difference is if it's if it's essential to being hired. <laughs> if it's in the job description. Yeah. Then then you'll get the attention and then you probably will get less pushback. <laughs> Yeah, and it may be a, a case of educating athletic directors yep. on the importance of of having those standards, not necessarily because you're going to be more successful, and hopefully you would be with better mm -hmm. training, but but maybe you're also taking care of the welfare of your student athletes more effectively if right. you have that training and it causes less drama for the athletic director. Yeah, true. In theory. Uh, let's move on. I, I know that you've you've started doing something in, in your own um, kind of coaching area. And I'm curious, I don't know much about it, but I know you do it. Talk a little bit about how and what you're doing. Yeah, sure. So I am at the moment transitioning out of my role at the ITA um, in the coming months to focus exclusively on this business that you're referring to. So I started my own consulting business, DLM Coaching. Um, it, it's, I'm doing a number of different things. One of the main areas is I'm helping young tennis players navigate the college recruiting process because having been on the other side as a coach for so many years, I know that can be a daunting, overwhelming, very stressful process. So trying to help others with that. Um, but I'm also doing a lot of work with younger athletes of all sports um, in sort of this whole athlete performance area. So, for example, I am working with some athletes in the mental space. We'll use space again, <laughs> um, you know, helping them with um, nerves, confidence, things like this, how to properly prepare for matches. Um, we're working on um, on court some with that's specific to tennis, but I'm working with some younger players that are 
really um, aspire to play at the high, highest levels in juniors and then maybe college. And so um, I'm helping them. So I'm doing a number of different things, but I'm basically taking a life's worth of experience as an athlete and a coach and now turning and trying to help younger athletes that want to be successful and, and perhaps go to college. Okay. A lot of people are interested in, in this kind of um, job market. Mm -hmm. And, and typically it's the, I don't know where to begin. So if, if there was some kind of step-by-step -step process, where do you start and what things did you have to put in place in order for you to actually be in a place where you can actually earn an income from this? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, I have been kind of writing out ideas and plans for some time. Um, it wasn't really until this past January where I said, okay, this feels like a really good time to, to, do, to go ahead and do it. Um, so the first step was really uh, all, all of the logistics of starting a business. So, you know, get your LLC, get your insurance, create a website. I'm on social media, like get all of that up and running bank accounts, you name it, set up your, you know, Venmo and Stripe or whatever else, um, which, which took a fair amount of time to get up and yeah. running. And then it's, you know, content creation. It's, um, so for example, um, I have a recruiting newsletter that I, I, have written a ton of posts on. So it's really like putting your thoughts and ideas down uh, on paper and or, or on your website so that people know what you offer. I think just being really clear about what what is it that I feel like that I am, I could, I could, not that I'm an expert, but like I have a lot of experience in that I can provide to others that's a value add um, that will help them, that would be worth it to them. Um, and then figure out what that is and, and what those options might be like pricing um, and then go from there. It's small steps. I mean, I don't think any of this happens overnight. It certainly hasn't for me. I wasn't really expecting it to, but essentially leveraging you know, life's worth of people that you know, and that, you know, might want to help you and get the word out and, and, and little by little, you know, I feel like then um, things spread and, and happen fast over time. Uh, mm if that makes sense. So that's kind of where I've, where I've met now. And are you, are you doing things face to face? Are you doing it virtually are you doing both? How do you, how do you handle that? Yeah, I'm doing both. Um, it just depends on where people are located. So I do do some work remotely with um, like, for example, like the mental training I was talking about, or I've, uh, that can all be done virtually. We have set, set zoom times and then we'll kind of have things for, him or her to work on in between and report back that kind of a thing. And then also in person, if it, if it allows, certainly the on court is, is in person, but I have kids that come from New York, Massachusetts, wherever. And we'll just kind of, I live in Connecticut. So we'll do these kind of like training camps more or less where you bring great kids together that want to get better. I don't, I'm not attached to any kind of club or organization. I just bring people who want to work hard that have a, an amount of talent and, and a certain level, similar level, bring them together and let's, let's work and get better. That's kind of what we do. So. Well, I mean, this show is primarily for, for coaches and coaching. And so just in closing, thinking back on your experiences, both as a player and as a coach um, administrator as well, what advice would you have for, for coaches who are, wanting to get better? Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like the most important thing is to constantly be willing to evolve and to, um, as I said earlier, kind of be a student of the game. I, I think that that's so key. Um, you know, every generation is different. Like for me, I know something I stumbled upon at the very end of my career that I wish I had done earlier was even like a disc profile, you know, like I, I didn't know what that was, <laughs> but something like that, that, that I did. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is profound for me. Like understanding myself better, understanding the people that I'm working with, what makes them tick, how they operate, how to communicate, like the, the X's and O's of tennis, like you can set all of that aside. I feel like coaching, like you were saying earlier, the fundamentals across the board are so similar regardless of sport. And so being able to figure out how can I connect best with the people that I'm working with and communicate with them and have those relationships that trust, because then the rest will kind of almost take care of itself. Um, you know, but, but, it, but really focusing on the human connection that you have with those around you, whether you are an administrator, a coach, what have you, um, that, that's what I would say is like number one. And if somebody wants to reach out to you, maybe have questions or want to learn more about your, your coaching business, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Um, probably my email, which is, um, Danielle, yep, at dlmcoaching.com. My website's dlmcoaching.com. So, you know, anyone that needs to find that email or um, you can find out what I do there, that would be great. All right. Well, that's a wrap from us. Thank you, Danielle, for, for being a guest on the show. I appreciate you sharing a little bit of your expertise. And just a reminder, everybody, every couple of weeks, we try to interview somebody in sports. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to that or watching on YouTube. But on behalf of myself, Tim Baghurst, and Danielle McNamara, thanks so much for watching. Thanks, Tim.